by Miller and Friends. I confess to you that I have a sinking feeling of inadequacy. Uh, as of three hours ago, I did not expect to be here in this absolutely vain attempt to fill the unfillable shoes of Rabbi Salavati. Had anyone told me that I would be called to do this, I would have told him that he's mad. Apparently someone was mad, and I was even madder for accepting. Uh, it very much reminds me of the sign in the synagogue in this Washington Heights area that I remember I saw when I was a student and should have been in class instead walking the streets about a sisterhood in some little synagogue around here running a strawberry festival. And underneath it, this is during the war years, the end of the war, there was a little sign and it said, it said, due to the shortage of strawberries, we are serving prunes instead. <laughs> when you came for Rabbi Soloveitchik and you're getting lamb, you're getting the prunes, I'm awfully sorry. I ask you only not to hold it against me. It's not my fault. And uh, uh, I, hope, I hope that you do not apply Soloveitchikan expectations to a Lambian lecture. Now, the, the theme of the lecture that I have and on which, for which, Rabbi Miller will serve as discussant and try to complement or supplement uh, whatever words I may have, uh, the theme that I've chosen on this moment's notice is the problem of the emerging cultures in this country, the clash of cultures, and the role of Judaism, or even better, analog from Judaism, the role of Yeshiva University, and possibly the consequences for American Jewry and Israel Jewry. The first part is my lecture, the last three items I add, so that Mr. Goodman should not have been fooling you when he said I would discuss taxes. We are living in extremely tumultuous times, in times of violent change kind of cultural transformations that we are experiencing in our day were unpredicted as little as a decade ago and even eight or nine years ago. The two cultures that face each other, at least two cultures, I'm not going into all the Tulum of consciousness one, two, and three, but the two basic forms that confront each other are what might be called the establishment culture, the traditional culture of America, as it has progressed until the present time, and rebelling against it is the counterculture, partly expressed or mostly expressed as the youth revolution, of course, led by the revolting youth. Uh, the establishment culture is fundamentally secularist, and that refers even to its religious institutions, which has, has been shown by many observers and experienced by almost all of us. The religious institutions of the Western world, especially of the United States, of the establishment culture are basically secularizing or secularist institutions. The establishment culture is highly technological, not only in the use of technology, but even more in the worship, the adoration of technology. I'll come to that in a moment. And it is bourgeois. It is what we might call a rationalistic culture. I refer to it as rationalistic, not in the, not in the uh, medieval sense of rationalism as opposed to revelationism, 
a reason opposed to revelation, but reason as opposed to feeling, as opposed to emotion. Our culture bases a great deal more weight on intellect, on the use of the intellect, on reason and ideas, than it does upon human emotions and human feelings. It has a belief, almost mystical, apparently supported by experience, but not really, in the redemptive quality of the intellect. Uh, the intellect, in this sense, in the broader sense, in our community, in our society, expressed primarily in the form of science and technology. And the naive member of our culture believes that it is redemptive, that uh, if there is any great problem, any great scourge of mankind, this problem can be met and solved through the use of, uh, of science. Not only can science solve the problems of disease and the problems of engineering, but science also can be applied to man. And therefore, we have that term, which to me is an offense, an obscenity almost, forgive me my prejudice, the science of man. Man himself is a pliable object that can be placed under the sociologist's microscope and can use the methods of science and therefore, in one way or another, can be manipulated so that all his problems are solved. Again, we have a belief in the use of reason, of science, of methodology to solve our problems. This messianic rationalism, because this is going to bring along the utopia, of course, results in the suppression of the emotional dimension in Western man. And we all know it. I, I know it from my own experience. I grew up, after all, in Williamsburg as a child, in a more Hasidic background, a warmer background, then to Yeshiva University, where, after all, the atmosphere of Torah does lend you a certain, a certain emotional background. All my teachers, as well as my parents, East European, so that uh, I wasn't really a member of American culture, American society. And then I became a rabbi, which is the beginning of my assimilation. And, uh, and I remember the first time I had to preach a funeral oration, a eulogy. And uh, the family gave me careful instructions because I was a young man. I shall never forget them. They, they bore down on me time and again. Now don't make us cry. Don't make us cry. Americans don't like to cry at funerals. Crying is a sign of emotions. And emotions are a thing that intelligent people who are with it don't do. You don't get overly happy. You don't fall too much in love. You don't hate with any great passion. And you don't mourn with any great passion. We are a people who, have, who are suffering from, from a, an excessive diet of the emotions. We have an emotional thinness about ourselves. I remember when President Kennedy was assassinated. Do you recall that glorious conduct of Mrs. Kennedy, her regal bearing, and how everyone praised her for her queenly conduct? It took me about a year till I realized that, that this kind of conduct is alien to me as a human being. In fact, it's alien as a human being. The, the ability to stand up without ever cracking may be a sign of great discipline, but it may also be a sign of rishis. I'm not referring to it in any technical way. A sign of, of not having any real human emotions, because if they were real, how could you suppress them that way? But at any rate, our culture glorifies this kind of emotional diminution. 
Suppose that this is our counterculture. Again, I beg you to not to uh, take my words and as being in any kind of scientific, accurate, or sociological definition. I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not the son of a sociologist. I'm speaking only as a lay observer in an attempt to introduce or offer a pretext for the text of my remarks, namely to find certain antecedents in Judaism. The counterculture rejects these premises and these practices. If the established culture is rationalistic, giving the greatest value to reason, to ideas, to science, to method, the counterculture is a romantic movement. It is anti-bourgeois. It is anti many of the things that our culture stands for. After all, what American doesn't take a shower every day, except for Monsieur Bosman and foreigners? But an American, like, well, like a German, is a man who showers every day and if he very carefully bathes every day. The counterculture makes a virtue of dirt. It is against its cleanliness, which it regards as antiseptic. It is horrified by all these deodorant ads on TV and somehow glorifies body odor as a good thing, as a sign of humanity. It practices what it preaches. Uh, it, um, <laughs> it is very much opposed to the careerism which inflicted our generation. Uh, and you must admit that it has a point and it practices again, to a lesser extent, it practices what it preaches. It's against vocationalism. It doesn't believe that we have to look for the lily-white professions that will make a lot of money. That this is not what man was created to do. And so those who struggle to get into Harvard or to Columbia or Princeton and have their children do the same are now deeply disappointed because the children don't want to go to Harvard or to Boston or to, uh, or to uh, Princeton or to Columbia or Yale. And if they do, they drop out. And if they don't drop out, they want to become teachers. Terrorist assault. Or they want to do something which will not fulfill the vocational ideal of the parents for whom this kind of upper mobility and climbing into the great, glorious, prestige professions was the very sap of their life for which they sacrificed for their children. The counterculture is highly individualistic. It believes in doing your own thing. It considers the, the um, official politics and sociology of the culture, namely liberalism, as phony. And one can, if you forgive my personal prejudice, sympathize to a great extent. Their claim was that their parents, who had sold everything for belief and integration, were just men They just talked integration, and they were satisfied with integration as long as the problem existed down south. As soon as it came up north, those same people who were so highly liberal that their liberalism became for them an ersatz Judaism, they identified Judaism as nothing more than liberalism. These were the people who were hardest hit, especially during the teacher strike, and the ones who reacted in a highly illiberal fashion according to the members of the counterculture. They opposed the cult of the intellect, whether the pure or the practical intellect. By pure, I mean the academic disciplines, which are largely dismissed by the youth culture as being irrelevant to their lives. And they are tremendously negative about the practical realms of the intellect, namely 
science and technology, which I regard as downright demonic, as the scourge of mankind and that which is sullying our planet, dirtying our air, and destroying the quality and the actual fact of human life on this planet. Uh, they demand emotional freedom, a new breakout of freedom. They want experience. Their dagesh chazak is not on ideas, not on essence, not on methodology, not on abstractions, but on experience. Not talking experience, not studying it, but experiencing experience. They want to live it. They look for the liberation of the inner man. They speak of love. Well, of course, so did their parents. So has Western society for some 2,000 years. But uh, their, their definition of love is a bit different. For them, sexuality, of course, means something entirely no. For them, sexuality is newly liberated in the sense that they are willing to talk about what their parents did quite openly. Uh, song and dance take on new rhythms, responding to an inner liberation, as it were, to a, to a breakout of long pent-up emotions uh, that were restrained by the niceties, the courtesies, the almost teutonic discipline of the Western world of American society. They believe in spontaneity of emotions, which are now much more important than ideas. And for them, the essence of their approach is subjectivity, the importance of me, of doing my own thing, rather than objectivity and the study of anything which is important to mankind in the sense of, of academic or, or interpersonally verifiable disciplines. It's not important for me to study anything and contribute to scholarship. It is important for me to be myself and do what I like and what fulfills me. Of course, the counterculture comes in a number of varieties, and I would be committing an intellectual sin if I lumped it all together without mentioning that fact. There is the counterculture of the activist type who really, to them, my words do not apply. They do not disdain the intellect. They're quite intellectual, quite brilliant. Uh, for them, uh, intellect is used for ideological purposes. The overthrow of society of them I do not seek. I'm speaking more of the passive kind, those who live a more emotionally free life and for whom uh, the intellect is largely an irrelevancy. For I to put it in its extreme terms, again, uh, using the terms rather loosely, I would say that our reigning cultural form is Apollonian and the counterculture tends toward the Dionysian expression. The establishment culture is cold, disciplined, objective, Apollonian. The counterculture is for the explosion of emotions, unrestrained, uninhibited, spontaneous, simplistic, almost atavistic, primitive, and subjective. It considers the rule of reason, such as we have described it, as resulting in the depersonalization of man and the squashing of his humanity. Now, similar criticisms of our culture have been heard before hippiedom rose and before the Cultural Revolution took place. And one has only to read Joseph Wood Trust, the late Joseph Wood Trust, and his humanist arguments against the domination of the scientists, or to read Viktor Frankl and his, his highly intelligent thoughts of the existential vacuum of which man suffers today, of his existential neurosis because of the, frust because of the frustration of what he calls the will to meaning, 
And you have already a high-grade anticipation of this criticism of the establishment culture, which has been expressed in these mass movements of our time. I would strongly recommend to you as well a highly intelligent book by a man called Peter Berger, who, despite his name, is not Jewish. He's a non-Jewish, I think, Lutheran, uh, but he's, he's a sociologist. And he's, he wrote a book about, uh, oh, I would say, uh, a year and a half, two, two and a half years ago, a short book by the name of A Rumor of Angels, an excellent volume, in which he tries to show that there is a new search in modern life for something transcendent, something beyond the narrow confines of the sensual world, of the material world, of the scientific world. There is a quest for something higher and something beyond. And he tries to show how this quest for the transcendent is expressed not only in religion, but even in daily life we look for what he calls signals of transcendence. And I might add that many of these quests for transcendence, for something beyond the cold, disciplined, objective daily life, the prosaic life in which we live, frequently are shunted aside in neurotic form. Oh, you have it uh, all about us today, don't you? This new fad of astrology. And consulting the zodiac instead of the medical doctor or the stockbroker? Uh, what is it if not a, a sick form of a search for something beyond uh, the, the life which hems us in with its necessity and its rules and its, its scientific rules? Or the uh, or drugs, the search for the transcendence of experience, or mysticism of the, uh, of the exotic variety, or even people who are crazy about antiques, which frequently is simply an expression for the search for roots of people who feel that modern life does not afford them that particular experience. Now, what does all this to do with Judaism? Because I believe that the basic flash of the establishment and counterculture, which I prefer to see, as I have mentioned, as particular forms of two general tendencies, one of rationalism and the other of romanticism, one glorifying the intellect, another glorifying feeling and emotion, that we have records of these tendencies striving with each other in Jewish life and literature. Uh, I, of course, will make no effort at the present to give even a thumbnail uh, essay at uh, at uh, the history of these movements, but you have them. If, if you agree with me that rationalism and the romanticism basically collide on the value of idea as opposed to feeling, then you have it even in halakhic form. The question of Talmud Torah as opposed to tefillah. Uh, you certainly have it in the Middle Ages when the, when the med medieval Jewish philosophers of Chachme Yimei had been debated as to what is the highest goal of Judaism. Is it the, a conception of God, as the Rambam had it? Is the goal of man the highest perfection of man, the knowledge of God which is correct, Sechel? Or is it, as Rabbi Huda Levi put it, the highest goal of man is Zvekut, cleaving to God, using the mitzvah as a vehicle to reach out to him experientially. Here again you have the, the prefiguration of a rationalist attitude, even more with it, Amman, it is a rationalist attitude, and with Rabbi Yudha Levi, the prefiguration of a romantic attitude. 
I should like to confine myself, however, to a field much closer to our own uh, and try to show how two opposing movement, movements in Yahadush were or can be described as a collision between romantic and rationalistic types in Jewish form either one. And this takes place in the 18th century, when the whole issue blows full force on the scene of Jewish history in the form of the great polemic between Hasidus and Hishnabdus. The Hasidim and, uh, what shall I say from Tzadzai Hishnabdus, and what is the only word you can use? Protestants. Um, the, the, uh, their opponents. And here, interestingly, we find that the theological elements, the differences in Hashkofa, and the cultural elements, or differences in lifestyle, lifestyle means cultural pattern, except that cultural pattern is what people over 30 say, and lifestyle is what people under 30 say. That the theological and the lifestyle patterns are really intertwined almost down the line. Let me, let me just choose one little topic and show you how around this you have a cluster of similar ideas on which the two sides are divided, expressing this romantic, rationalistic collision. Torah and Tzila. We all know that the problem, as I mentioned a moment ago, was already discussed in the Talmud. Uh, the statement, the most famous statement of all, is the Mishnah and Teya, with which everyone is acquainted, the Talmud Torah, Keneged Kulam. So I remind myself of the story of a reformed temple, a very, very reformed temple, which had a big sign on top of it, slab of stone, the Talmud Torah, Keneged Kulam. And an Orthodox rabbi was walking past, an Orthodox Jew, and he saw a reformed the rabbi of the temple walking out, and he recognized him from the old days. And he said to him, tell me, your kind of temple, what is that doing on top? He said, you don't understand. We are so reformed that even Hebrew we read from left to right. It's Kulam Keneged Talmud Torah. Equilibrium that had gone through the ages were the Hasidim. 
Hasidists saw prayer as the highest religious value. Torah may be a higher halakhic value, but tefillah is, after all, a, the, the most characteristic religious expression of man. Um, there is no Torah without tefillah, they thought. That if you study Torah but you lack tefillah, then somehow the Torah fails. It's aborting. It never succeeds in fulfilling its spiritual mission until tefillah takes place. Chabad, the Balatanya thought that, and here you see how he upgrades tefillah. He upgrades tefillah using for tefillah the same expressions we normally use for Torah. Tefillah, he tells us, is a form of disdalus, a form of revelation. When we say revelation, what do we normally think of? Torah. As a rabbi, I've got to speak now, none of the young ones, Jewish is coming up. Uh, Torah normally is only information. Now what does God reveal? He revealed laws, he revealed commandments, he revealed norms. For the Tanya and for Hasidus, Tila too is a revelation. Because Hasidus taught that the Spiros exists within man. There is a realm of divinity that transacts the human organism. And within man spiritually, there is a reservoir of divinity. Man doesn't always know it. Tila helps him to reveal to his conscious mind what lies in him all along unconsciously. You incidentally find the same theme with Rav Kook in the introduction to his Ola Shri'iya. He has a beautiful passage, the, the eternal prayer of the soul. The soul is an eternal prayer. When we daven, we just realize it, but otherwise it's praying anyway. So Tzilah is a form of Hidgalut, a form of revelation. Um, Rav Nachman Braslava tells us that when one studies Torah, Yistadeo la'asos me Torah tefillah. He must always endeavor to transform his Torah into tefillah. Torah, despite the fact that it is the, the ultimate act of intellection, requiring such careful analysis, must result in a spiritual performance, one in which the emotions participate, and therefore Torah becomes a form of tefillah, and in fact, all of this goes back to the Baal Shem Tov himself, who was recorded by a student of his in the Tavosh and Basha saying that Omar Haneshama El Harav, the soul said, his own soul of the, of, of the Baal Shem Tov said to him, He didn't have the Zakiya, the Zakus, the privileges of all these visions. Not because he learned a great deal of Gemara and Halakha, but because he davened with such hislahavus, with such passion, that he could have expired every two or three days. It is the tefillah, rather than the Talmud Torah, that gave the Balshemtov his mystical excellence and his spiritual eminence. Where again do we find the main emphasis now turns to tefillah, as the fulcrum of the whole movement's religious philosophy. It does not mean, and I, again, I don't want to exaggerate, it does not mean that they ignored Talmud Torah, but vis-a-vis Tila, there was a shift of the seesaw. The Mishnagdim, in response to this, had a natural, a natural reaction. Because the Hasidim tilted it in favor of Tila, what the Mishnagdim did was to raise Talmud Torah to the highest conceivable level. 
for them the expression Talmud Torah Kanega Kula meant not only that study is more or is greater than the mitzvot, but it was interpreted to mean that study is the whole of which the mitzvot are the part. So that the mitzvot, Rabbi Chaim of Olazim taught, have no autonomous value or kedusha. No mitzvah has kedusha except because it was written in the Torah. It is a derivative kedusha only coming from Talmud Torah itself. So Talmud Torah becomes the source or the branch, rather the um, the branch of the uh, no, not the the trunk. That's it. The trunk of which everything else is the branch. Um, or as he taught, interpreted the the Mishnah and Perak al Tash Tilovka Keva, which Shat means do not make your Tila routine Tila Keva as opposed to Tafel, and said do not make the Tila the main thing and Torah secondary, but Torah is primary and Tila is secondary. Not only in the theological assessment of relative priorities did they differ, but also in the forms that it took. The form of Tila for Mishnagin was discipline, solemn, with a certain quietude, the melodies uh, were subdued, the whole davening was subdued. For Chassidim, prayer became an, an exercise of the emotions and sometimes even acrobatics. Uh, it became Tishlahavos, taking a great deal, dancing a great deal, drinking a lachayim in order to, to uh, precipitate stimulation of the emotions and, and therefore, as opposed to the solemnity of the rationalistic culture, the Mishnagim, the Chassidim had the romantic favoring of emotional expression. Even in the study of Torah, the same thing takes place. For the Chassidim, the study of Torah meant Lishma for the purpose of understanding. For Chassidim, Lishma meant for the purpose of communion with God and therefore fundamentally an experiential act. And uh, there were other cultural phenomena expressing the same, uh, the same conflict of rationalistic and romantic modes. I'll just give you some examples. Uh, Mishnagdic life was orderly, disciplined, analytic. Who was the authority in Mishnagdic life? Thomas Chacham. Thomas Chacham was the authority, naturally. It's, a, it's an intellectual approach in a religious context. For the Hasidim, it was a different lifestyle. Cleanliness was not held up as an important aspect of life. They were against external forms. The, the, the Hasidim of Rabbi Melech of Lizensk, the founder of Galicia Hasidism, held that a, a Litvak came to hear him speak once to Shalosh Hiddish. And he was giving a Bartar, and after he finished, he said, Rebbe, you spoke so beautifully. And the Rebbe Melech was horrified, he was struck dumb. And he said, may I be struck dumb before I speak beautifully? Because to speak musically in a disciplined, uh, rhetorical fashion was a sign of artifice. And everything that was artificial was absurd. Only the natural was accepted as being genuine and as being of value. So again, a rebellion against artificial forms in favor of the spontaneous. Um, who became the leader in the Hasidic community? Not so much the Talmud Chacham, but rather leadership was given to the charismatic individual, the Rebbe. Translate that to current terms, the guru. The guru, the man who, not through powers of persuasion intellectually, 
but rather powers of personal magnetism can draw his people not to an idea, but to an experience. Therefore, to the shibble as, as opposed to the formal synagogue. Uh, it's a sign of more emotional relief, more informality, and what would seem to be more naturalness as opposed to artifice. And also no punctuality. Are they going to meet you on time? And therefore, the lack of punctuality, again, is a sign of this emotional riding out rather than sharp, formal, intellectual discipline. Now, both of these are in danger of going to extremes. Hasidism, which gives bent to emotions as a form of avodah Hashem, can become chaos. And in its chaos, can undo the halakha. And indeed, there was such a threat in the early history of the movement. In 1770, there was a movement, a, one of the branches of Hasidus, undertaken or led by the Baron Kalashka, which was later put in cherem, or threatened with a cherem, uh, by the, the, uh, the teacher, the, the student of the Balsempa, the teacher of the Magad, the teacher of the Baron, namely the Magad, the great Magad of Nezrit. They began to perform such bizarre activities that people began to look at them as we, Lahabul Arafadolos, look at the most exotic kitten. They began to Heichelensbach, uh, it's called in the, in the writings of the uh, somersaults, doing somersaults in the streets. Uh, and a form, this is a conscious way of setting themselves aside, of serving God through, through excessive, as I said, acrobatic emotions. And, and this threatened the integrity of the Hasidic movement, which was in a very delicate thing, and therefore the Hasidim themselves called a halt to it. Hishmagdus, on the other hand, has the problem, the danger of overemphasizing law and discipline, and the Sydney University forgiving my heresy, there is such a thing as overemphasizing halakha to the point where it becomes nothing but a form of intellectual entertainment, and it loses its spiritual moorings in the inner life of man, there is such a thing as overdoing halakha, and, and one must keep it in balance. I think that Lithuanian Jewry and the rest of Jewry of Eastern Europe have suffered to an extent from such extravagance. Uh, as a result, there was a kind of depersonalization, a lack of fervor, so that Talmudic Chachamim lost their masses. They lost their masses. Proof of the fact is that Hasidism spread so quickly. And more proof of the fact is that the Mishnagdim too had to fill in, and to a large extent the Musa movement came to add an emotional dimension of a completely different kind from Hasidus, but an emotional dimension that had been lacking earlier. Now the Jewish community. What, what I have tried to show, therefore, is the background of the romantic and rationalistic tendencies in Judaism at one particular point in history, and the obvious, the obvious result that Judaism has in a very healthy fashion sought a balance between those tendencies. Here, as we saw a moment ago, Hasidism veered away from the extreme, and as time went on, gave more and more attention to Talmud Torah, and Hishnagdus, or Halakhic Judaism, also kept away from extremes, and it moved more towards emotion in the form of adding the Musa elements until today, the, the two lifestyles, as it were, uh, very, very close to each other, 
As a matter of fact, for most American Jews, any Jew who wears a beard and has pants and wears a black hat is a hussy. Um, but today, we find that, as Heinrich Heine said, the Epistelsuch, the Ritelsuch, I don't know why it's, it's a German as Heine. The idea, of course, goes much further back. But Yuda Achasha said it in the 12th century, that Shemimag Anotrim Kaiminag Ayehudim. Since the romantic movement is making headway in general society, we have it. Why romanticism is breaking out in our community too. Chavurot in almost every large city with a popularity, I suspect, far in excess of their numbers or importance. JDL, which is a kind of Jewish self-assertion in almost a romantic, almost a mystical, excuse me, mystical fashion. I'm speaking now of the of the young uh, of the young uh, fellow travelers. Uh, all the various radical groups, the neo-Hasidic groups, a group like Kedma in, in Israel, a kibbutz which is attracting hippies and getting them off drugs by adding, by, by pulling them in with a great deal of fervor. And Yerat Shemayim, I remember coming back a few months ago from Israel and El Al. Opposite me sits a young man with a beard, no hat, no kippah, and barefoot. From one look at him and his very dirty and poor clothes, I knew he must be very, very wealthy. And indeed, <laughs> I got into conversation with him, and naturally, he lives on Fifth Avenue and 72nd Street. Um, and uh, he told me some of his experiences. He had just discovered Judaism in Israel and was lecturing me about all the intricacies. And uh, he told me that his most interesting experience was at the wall. Uh, he had his camera, and he saw a chosid, and he had to take this picture. Back from the wall where they have the the Mechita separating the onlookers from the participants. Um, he saw a chassid sitting, a chassid, that means a Jew with a beard and payas and young fellow on the yarmulke, sitting with legs crossed, bowed over munching an apple. And he said, this I've got to take. But he didn't want to offend the subject of his art uh, by taking his picture uh, without consulting him first. So he said, uh, in his uh, clearest English, the other fellow probably doesn't know any English and understand him, Please, may I take your picture? And the Chassid looks at him, takes the apple out of his mouth and says, Go on, man, just do your own thing. <laughs> well, I certainly hope you're not going to leave here. Um, I hope no one's going to come back to the Rav and tell him that Lam said that Chassidim are hippies. Uh, I'm just showing a general cultural form. I, I assume that this kind of sophisticated audience of YU alumni doesn't have to be filled in on the enormous differences. Uh, you have a, a new search going on amongst youngsters in Israel, the Gesser group, uh, to, which I, to, the, to which I invite the attention of all of you, a group sponsored almost exclusively by Yeshiva, young Yeshiva alumni, trying to introduce the seminar system we developed in America at Yeshiva trying to introduce that to Israel. So far, a very young organization. Remarkable success because of this, this feeling of a search for something warmer, something more meaningful. Or Russian Jews, for whatever the reason might be. A search for identity is not a rational thing. It's not a rational thing. It's something non-rational. I don't know what to call it. Certainly emotional, enough of a grip on the emotions to make people willing to sacrifice their lives. And of course, the kind of youngsters who come from all over the country and all over the countries to us here at Yeshiva University, particularly to the James Flyer School. 
There's much to criticize in this romantic uh, outbreak and this romantic rash almost. Too often it's vacuous. And if ethnicism remains empty and without content, then it sooner or later must dissipate and cannot survive. Just as intellectualism alone is inadequate because it's cold and impersonal, passion alone is not sufficient and can't last long enough for a person to ride on it to a full and meaningful life for the future. If the ethnicism that now has erupted in these romantic, various romantic forms is to be meaningful, is to be used by us, by Judaism, especially by Orthodoxy, we have got to give it a Torah base. Lo amoris kosher. Man cannot be pious in the Mishnah sense or in the Hasidic sense or in the current countercultural sense. He cannot be withered. He cannot participate uh, if he is an Amoris. This much we know from our own experience of 3,500 years. And I believe that if there is any institution from which uh, such direction can come to the reawakened Jewish consciousness of a good part of our population, it has to be our own Yeshiva University. Here, all of us who have gone through Yeshiva despite our complaints, and I've never met a Yeshiva University alumnus who wasn't brimming with complaints, until he moves out of town and can't send his children here, in which case he's absolutely in despair. Um, with all our complaints, we know the value of Yeshiva. We know, we know that here, those of us who have gone through it carefully, and sure all of us have, we have been able to find not the right balance because Yeshiva never promised any of us that it would give us a ready-made, prefabricated, synthesis philosophy of life. It did promise to give us the material, and we have got to be the ideological tenant. We are the ones, each of us, some succeed, some fail, have got to combine them into our own personality. We received here the ingredients of intellect and of emotion, orientation, and conviction. And from here they can go to our entire generation. This is a critical time in the life of Yeshiva, as all of us know. And it is good to know that we have alumni who know the value of Torah, are very much involved in general life, in the various cultures in which we live simultaneously, and who appreciate the function that Yeshiva University can play. So, just to summarize very quickly what I have been trying to say, and that is that American Jewry, as part of the whole context of the society in which we live, is now experiencing this romantic impetus which expresses itself in a renewed ethnic pride. Now this ethnic pride, although it is extravagant, is basically a good thing if we can combine its valuable elements and dimensions with the basic vector, the basic value and direction of our great classical culture, namely Talmud Torah. Only when both are merged, and a combination which can be supplied by Yeshiva and Yeshiva graduates, can we hope to exploit these new tendencies and these new opportunities. For listening to me as patiently as you did, I thank you and I accept it as a tribute to the great teacher for whom I substituted.